Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Pediatric Emergencies Podcast. So today I've got another lecture from the Pediatric Emergencies Intubation course dealing with intubation in special circumstances. So before I get to the lecture, um, I just want to let you know that we hope to release the date for the next Pediatric Emergencies Intubation course in Belfast, which is probably going to be in October. Um, hope to have a, a date agreed within the next week or so and I'll put it up on the website. But if you're interested in coming to this, have a look at the programme and there's a course manual with um, some of the lectures up on the website paediatricemergencies.com and you can register your interest, get your name on the waiting list for that next course in October prior to me releasing the date. Okay, on with the lecture. Hi, it's Chris Flanagan here. Welcome to this talk on intubation in special circumstances. So in this section, I'll provide advice on how the standard technique should be modified and the key points to remember when intubating children in four special circumstances. And the first special circumstance I want to mention is septic shock. It's also relevant to children who aren't shocked but have the potential to become shocked. So the first thing I want to cover is the indications for intubating a child with septic shock. Um, and the current guidelines say that semi-elective intubation and ventilation should be undertaken if there's ongoing signs of shock which is unresponsive to 40 mils per kilo of fluid resuscitation. Obviously as well, if you have signs of airway obstruction or loss of the protective airway reflexes um, at any stage, that's also an indication for intubation. So intubating the shock patient um, provides a number of advantages. Um, firstly, it significantly reduces the demand for oxygen um, to the muscles of respiration and to the brain um, by putting the child off to sleep and letting the ventilator take over the work of breathing. The demand for oxygen um, goes down uh, and shock is really um, an inability to meet the vital organs metabolic demand and deliver enough oxygen to them. So if you can reduce their demand um, by intubating the patient and putting them off to sleep, giving them an anaesthetic, um, that can help um, with the imbalance between supply and demand. The other problem is you've um, given this children um, quite a bit of fluid resuscitation. Um, by definition, by the time you're intubating them, they should have had 40 mils per kilo of fluid resuscitation at the time you're making the decision. And actually, prior to intubation, you should give them another 20 mils per kilo of fluid resuscitation. So that's 60 mils per kilo of fluid. Um, the circulating blood volume is 80 mils per kilo. So you've given the child uh, three quarters of their blood volume uh, in fluid. And um, they've probably already got leaky capillaries, so they're going to get pulmonary edema. And intubating them and providing PEEP is a way to combat this. The other reason for intubating the child is that you're going to need to insert invasive lines to manage them properly. They're going to need a central line, an arterial line. And while that can be done under local anaesthetic, it's much easier and quicker to be done um, in, when the patient's asleep, um, particularly if they're likely to be quite idiopathic. So intubating the septic patient does offer a number of advantages in improving their hemodynamics, um, but it does have one significant disadvantage, and that is that any anaesthetic agent you give that child is going to be a cardiac depressant. And this is a time when the child is right on the edge from a cardiovascular point of view, and there's high risk of them resting 
during the process of intubation. I'd have to say this is the most challenging aspect of my job is getting the septic child who has to go under the ventilator because if you don't intubate them and get them on the ventilator they won't survive. But in the process of doing so there's a high risk of them arresting and that skill of getting them safely under the ventilator and doing everything that you can to prevent them arrest is what this talk is really about. Okay, so the first thing you need to do is call for help. It doesn't matter how skilled you are, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. And if you have the insight to recognise just how sick this child is and how they're likely to deteriorate during the intubation process, you're going to want all the help that you can have. And this is something I call for help when I'm managing these children, so you should be calling for help. Ideally, it's somebody senior, a consultant in either emergency medicine, anaesthesia, or intensive care. Um, it's also quite useful if you're in a district general hospital to pick up the phone and speak to the retrieval team because we'll be able to talk you through um, the steps for intubating the hemodynamically unstable child um, because a lot of the things you would do as standard care are likely to make this child deteriorate. One of the key um, learning points about this is that resuscitation of the cardiovascular system must take place prior to intubation and ventilation. I'll say that again. You must resuscitate the cardiovascular system before intubation and ventilation. So this doesn't mean if there's a problem with the airway and breathing that you should ignore it. And the ideal thing to do is to put the patient on a bagging circuit with a mask um, pre-oxygenate them uh, with 100% oxygen and give them PEEP um, while you make preparations for intubation and while you adequately resuscitate the cardiovascular system. So open the airway, support the patient with oxygen and PEEP. We've already talked about um, fluid resuscitation, so you're making the decision to intubate um, due to shock that's unresponsive to 40 mL per kilo of fluid resuscitation. At that stage, you should give them another 20 mils per kilo of fluid resuscitation and start peripheral vasoactive drugs. Um, I've done a separate talk on um, push-dose pressors and peripheral vasoactive drugs, um, and it's on the website pediatricemergencies.com. I will talk very briefly about it here. Um, so adrenaline is the ideal drug to be starting with. Um, it's just as safe um, peripherally as any of the other. Um, vasoactive drugs so you can give it through a good peripheral cannula or an interosseous line and you should be doing that you shouldn't be worried about starting peripheral vasoactive drugs on a patient who needs them so you always make up peripheral adrenaline in the same way it's a milligram of adrenaline and 50 mils of normal saline so that's one little ampule one mil of adrenaline one in one thousand or it's a pre-filled syringe 10 mils of adrenaline one in ten thousand they both contain the one milligram of adrenaline you need. The advantage of it, it's in any resus trolley. You don't need to go searching in a cupboard for your vasoactive drugs. And you run that at 0.3 times the patient's weight in kilogram in mils an hour. So for example, your 10 kilo child, three mils an hour. And that is equivalent to 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. And that should be titrated to effect. Probably the Biggest learning point about starting adrenaline infusions, lots of people can get past the step of starting them, but actually they go on ahead and give the induction agent before the adrenaline's even reached the patient. And that's because they haven't factored in 
dead space. So you need to know the dead space of the cannulas and IV extension sets that you use. Um, and you have to make sure that the adrenaline infusion that you've given has made its way through this dead space and reached the patient before you give them the induction agent and send them off to sleep. Um, so I know the cannulas I use have a dead space of 0.1 mils and the extension sets are 0.3 mils. So I have a total dead space of 0.4 mils. So because I know that, when I'm starting my adrenaline infusion, I bolus 0.4 mils and then start it at the pre-calculated rate. And I'm watching the patient waiting for a jump in their blood pressure and heart rate to show that the adrenaline has reached them. And I'm not inducing anesthesia until that point. Um, because it's highly dangerous to put these kids off to sleep without the vasoactive drugs, which are gonna provide stability during that process. So it's really important you know your dead space and actually you'd be surprised how long it can take for your infusion to get through that dead space. Um, so for example, let's take a three kilo baby. Um, and as I said, the starting dose of adrenaline is 0.3 times the weight uh, in kilos. And that's in mils an hour of that standard one milligram in 50 mils infusion. So that three kilo baby, 0.3 times three is 0.9 mils an hour. We've got 0.4 mils of dead space to get through. That's gonna take 27 minutes from when you start the infusion to when the adrenaline first reaches your patient. So you have to know that if you, no one's gonna to want to wait 27 minutes for the drug to reach the patient. That just doesn't make sense to do that. So go into your department, um, get a one mil syringe, fill it with saline, connect it up to um, the IV extension sets and cannulas that you use and flush it through and see how much it takes to get through the dead space. So the next time you're starting peripheral vasoactive drugs, you're gonna bolus that amount and then start the infusion at the standard rate. And that's gonna mean you're gonna get an immediate delivery of a life-saving drug to your patient. Okay, say you don't have time to make up and titrate an adrenaline infusion. Um, there is another um, tactic you can use and that's called push dose pressors. Um, so you can make up some push dose adrenaline. Um, all you do is you take a mil of adrenaline, one in 10,000, uh, the same strength you use in a cardiac arrest and dilute that with nine mils of saline. So you've diluted the adrenaline one in 10,000 by 10 to make adrenaline one in 100,000, which contains 10 mics of adrenaline per mil. Um, and all you do with this is you give 0.1 mils per kilo um, as a bolus um, up to a max of two mils at a time. And you do that as often as you need to. Um, the usual rate is between 30 seconds to 10 minutes. Um, and the advantage of this is you're not having to um, titrate it to effect because your bolus is in and working straight away. Um, so great when you've got that crashing patient, you just don't have time to make up the adrenaline infusion. Um, or for example, say somebody started your patient on dopamine and you just want some adrenaline as well to cover the intubation, this is perfect. Okay, so it's really important that you brief all the team members about the high risk of this child arresting on induction of anesthesia. Um, most people will be looking at the person doing the intubation going, I really hope they get the tube in. Uh, they must get the tube in, this child is really, really sick. But that is not actually the difficult bit. Normally putting the tube in is straightforward, but it's actually watching the hemodynamics while the tube is being put in after the induction agent has been given because that's the time these children 
deteriorate and arrest. And if people are watching you, going to hope they get the tube in, rather than watching the patient and their hemodynamics and optimizing that, um, this is when mistakes can happen. So it's really important that you have a separate team leader from whoever's doing the intubation. Somebody has to be watching the patient while somebody else is doing the intubation. And if you're leading the leading and doing the intubation, you're not going to have your eye on the ball for a certain moment. So hand that role of team leader over to somebody else and brief them on what they need to be watching for and the actions they need to take should things deteriorate. Um, if you don't have an arterial line in, and for most of these kids you won't, um, it's important that you have the blood pressure cuff cycling every minute, um, watching for hypotension. So that's still going to be quite a delay between the blood pressure readings, and it's quite plausible that a child can completely drop their cardiac output between one blood pressure recording and the next. So it's really important that you allocate one member of the team to put a finger on a central pulse, and if that pulse starts to weaken, that they give some push dose adrenaline. And for example, if this wasn't a crashing patient that you're intubating, it's a, a child who has the potential to become shocked with induction of anesthesia, but isn't actually too bad at the moment, so it's a semi-elective intubation, um, it's probably worth putting the arterial line in before the induction of anesthesia so that you can keep a much closer eye on their hemodynamics um, during the intubation. Um, and it goes without say that obviously you should have uh, fluid prepared for fluid boluses and all the resuscitation drugs prepared prior to the induction of anaesthesia. Going on to the anaesthetic agents that you're going to use, um, propofol, thiopentone and midazolam must not be used for the induction um, of anaesthesia in hemodynamically unstable patients. Um, even in stable patients, these drugs will cause a drop in blood pressure. Um, ketamine is regarded probably as the safest induction agent to use in these children um, and in well patients it normally causes a slight elevation in blood pressure um, due to the release of endogenous catecholamines. Um, however, your septic patient has absolutely exhausted all their own endogenous catecholamines so ketamine is still going to cause hypotension on induction but compared to the other agents Hopefully it will be less than this. Um, what is important to say then is you're going to want to reduce the dose of ketamine that you give. Um, and for most of my shock patients, I'm giving them 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. It's also important to note that because of the impaired circulation, it's going to take longer for the drug to reach the brain. So you should expect it to take longer um, to have its effect and avoid the temptation to give more too soon. Um, because it's all going to hit it once and that's going to cause you problems with your blood pressure. Um, when we look at which uh, muscle relaxant to give, again that's discussed in the intubation pharmacology talk, um, I would recommend using rocuronium rather than uh, succinothonium um, for a modified rapid sequence induction um, because it's going to have less side effects, particularly bradycardia. Um, and the last thing you need in a septic patient who's already at risk of hypertension is to add a bradycardia. So I would use a small dose of ketamine, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and a big dose of rocuronium, an RSI dose, a milligram per kilogram. Um, and it's obviously important that you have the most experienced person putting the tube in so that it's nice and slick. Um, the other thing uh, worth considering is some prophylactic atropine. Um, like we've mentioned, the last thing you want is a bradycardia. 
and it's probably better to prevent rather than treat the bradycardia. So you can give atropine prophylactically um, rather than waiting till the bradycardia occurs. Moving on to the type of tube that you should put in, um, providing it's not contraindicated, um, you've got a preterm neonate or a child that's less than three kilos, you should be using a cuff tube. Um, this is a child you don't want to have to go back and upsize the tube because of leak and difficulties with ventilation. You want to put one tube down and leave it down. Um, so a cuff tube lets you do that. Um, the other important thing is your intubation should be oral, not nasal. The septic patient's highly likely to have um, either coagulopathy or thrombocytopenia. So the last thing you want to do is cause bleeding um, that's going to prevent you putting the tube in. Likewise, there are some places have a practice of intubating orally and then electively changing the tube to nasal. Um, these unstable patients, um, you shouldn't be doing this. Once you've got your oral tube down, job done. The last thing you want to do is put the child through on a necessary intubation um, where they're likely to deteriorate again by just changing the tube from oral to nasal. There's much more things that you need to do with this child from sorting out like getting lines in, looking at the hemodynamics, so you shouldn't be messing about with switching a tube from oral to nasal. Just leave it oral and get on with all the other work that needs done. Okay, so that was my key learning points for intubating the hemodynamically unstable patient. In summary, it's about ensuring you've optimised the hemodynamics before inducing anaesthesia. And even with this, expect the patient to deteriorate on induction of anaesthesia so that you're not caught out. Okay, so the next group of patients I want to talk about are duct-dependent congenital heart disease. So due to their underlying heart disease, these babies are unlikely to tolerate intubation well, and you should expect cardiovascular instability on induction of anaesthesia. Um, so the first part of these babies is really expect them to deteriorate with anaesthesia and you should prepare them similarly to the septic patient as we've already discussed. Um, so if the child isn't currently shocked but obviously has the potential to become shocked due to their underlying heart disease, you may want to just administer a fluid bolus prior to the induction of anaesthesia and have push-dose adrenaline prepared to treat any hypertension should it occur rather than routinely starting an adrenaline infusion in all these babies. And the reason for that is um, starting adrenaline at the dose we use in a septic patient, um, 0.1 mics per kilo per minute, will increase the afterload to the heart, um, which will make the heart work harder. Um, and that might not be the right thing um, to do depending on the individual patient's hemodynamics. If you do decide to start an adrenaline infusion, you may want to start at a slightly lower dose. Um, for example, 0.05 mics per kilo per minute, um, and then titrate towards effect. Um, at that dose, you're going to get all the anotropy um, without um, causing an increase in afterload to the heart. Um, so that may be more appropriate for certain patients. Although there may be patients you do want to increase the afterload and the higher dose of adrenaline may be appropriate. So you're probably going to give most patients a fluid bolus to optimise preload prior to induction of anaesthesia. Um, and you're going to manage um, cardiovascular instability with either push-dose adrenaline or a peripheral adrenaline infusion. Um, and which you choose is going to depend on the individual patient's 
hemodynamics and this should be decided on by somebody who's experienced in looking after these babies and again if you're not pick up the phone call the paediatric retrieval team and we can talk you through how to manage the patients so the first part of these patients is expect them to decompensate on induction of anesthesia and the second special thing that you need to do is to limit the amount of oxygen you give these patients so oxygen is a really potent stimulus to cause the duct to close um, and the reason you're intubating most of these kids is because the duct has started to close or is closing so if you give them 100% oxygen as you would um, for any sick patient um, as part of pre-oxygenation you can actually cause the duct to fully close and make the patient deteriorate rather than making them better um, so for most babies with duct dependent congenital heart disease they should be pre-oxygenated in 30 to 40 percent oxygen at most i want to go on and talk about one particular type of congenital heart disease um, which will be duct dependent initially and that's hypoplastic left heart syndrome and the reason for doing that is because standard care in these babies during intubation can have disastrous consequences um, so in hypoplastic left heart syndrome, you've got a very hypoplastic left side of the heart um, and your blood supply to the systemic circulation is through the ductus arteriosus, um, feeding from the pulmonary arteries um, through to the aorta. So blood coming out of the right ventricle can go one of two ways. It can go out the pulmonaries to the lungs or it can go across the duct to the systemic circulation. And which way it goes depends on the path of least resistance. Um, and this is particularly important round about the process of intubation. If, for example, you pre-oxygenate the patient in 100% oxygen, this will cause the pulmonary arteries to dilate. All the blood coming out the right ventricle then will take the path of least resistance, which is going to be out the pulmonary arteries, which are maximally dilated, rather than going through the duct to the order. So you're going to get pulmonary overcirculation and systemic collapse if you pre-oxygenate these babies in 100% oxygen. Likewise, if you're a bit enthusiastic with your bagging and you hyperventilate these patients and lower their carbon dioxide, this is also a stimulus for the pulmonary arteries to vasodilate. So blood is going to go into the pulmonary circulation in preference to the systemic circulation and you're going to get cardiovascular collapse. So simple things like pre-oxygenation and hyperventilation, which we all tend to do when we're anxious um, prior to intubating one of these patients, is highly likely to cause one of these kids to arrest. So you need to limit the oxygen that you give them and you also need to ventilate them slowly. So um, that was a quick run through the key tips when intubating a baby with duct-dependent congenital heart disease. The two main things to watch out for are these babies in view of their underlying cardiac anatomy are unlikely to tolerate intubation well so be prepared for this and optimize them the other thing is you're going to want to limit your oxygen content to 30 to 40 percent oxygen at most and be particularly careful with babies with um, univentricular anatomy and make sure you don't hyperventilate them so the next group of patients i want to come on and talk about is the unfasted patient. So the reason I've picked this group of patients is because there's a bit of confusion about what should or shouldn't be done 
um, when intubating the critically ill child. And this isn't always well recognised. Um, paediatricians um, quite often don't consider fasting when they're deciding about their intubation plan. Whereas anaesthetists who are well used to considering fasting and adopting their plan based on this may do some things that mightn't be appropriate to do in the critically ill child. So the traditional teaching is that if you're doing an emergency intubation in the, the unfasted patient or the patient who's critically ill where their gastric emptying may be unreliable, it should be done following a rapid sequence induction of anaesthesia. So a rapid sequence involves pre-oxygenating the patient so you build up a reservoir of oxygen in their lungs. You then apply cricoid pressure and give the patient a pre-calculated dose of an induction agent followed immediately by a fast-acting muscle relaxant. So during the apnea period while you're waiting for the muscle relaxant to take effect the patient isn't given any face mask ventilation so they're apneic. Um, once the muscle relaxant has taken effect um, which can be anything from 30 seconds to about a minute depending on what you use um, the patient is then intubated. Um, Cricoid pressure is then only removed once the endotracheal tube has been confirmed to be in the correct position with capnography and the cuff has been inflated. So the main advantage of doing a rapid sequence induction is to reduce the risk of aspiration in high-risk patients. The disadvantages of performing one are what limit the use of this technique in the critically ill child. Um, firstly, when performing a rapid sequence induction, you're taking a gamble that you'll be able to intubate the patient quickly and without any difficulty. Um, so if your patient has features that um, may indicate that they may have a difficult anatomical airway, then you shouldn't be performing a rapid sequence induction um, because the risks and complications of failed intubation outweigh the risks of aspiration. So firstly, there are certain groups of patients that won't be appropriate to perform a rapid sequence induction on, and that applies to both adults and children. So when performing a rapid sequence induction, um, cricoid pressure, which is posterior pressure applied to the cricoid cartilage, um, designed to occlude the esophagus and prevent regurgitation and aspiration, um, it can have adverse consequences. Um, if the cricoid pressure isn't completely posterior, it can cause the uh, laryngeal opening to be deviated to one side. Um, also in children, um, particularly small babies, it can completely distort the airway, um, making intubation impossible. And what's worse is actually the evidence that um, cricoid pressure actually reduces the risk of aspiration is actually quite limited. So probably the biggest problem um, with performing a rapid sequence induction in children is that face mask ventilation isn't administered while you're waiting for the muscle relaxant to take effect. Um, and the reason for that is that face mask ventilation um, has a risk of inflating the stomach and therefore increasing the risk of regurgitation and aspiration. And that's what a rapid sequence is primarily divine, designed to prevent. It's designed to prevent aspiration. Um, the problem with that in critically ill patients is that they're unlikely to have normal lungs. 
So during that pre-oxygen period, you fill the lungs up with oxygen, um, which is designed to provide a reservoir where oxygen can move from the lungs into the blood. So during that apnea period, um, oxygen is constantly being used up by the body, but because oxygen moves by diffusion, it can move from the reservoir in the lungs back into the blood, so the patient shouldn't desaturate. So the problem is if you've got a patient with abnormal lungs, that reservoir of oxygen that you can build up is going to be limited and it might not be enough to um, prevent the patient desaturating during the apnea period or if intubation is prolonged. So problems with this aren't just limited to patients with lung pathology and you can get problems in patients with normal lungs. Um, as during the apnea period we've already mentioned oxygen can move um, from the lungs into the circulation. Um, the problem is that removal of carbon dioxide requires ventilation. Um, so during the apnea period or during the intubation, carbon dioxide can't be eliminated from the blood. And there have been quite a marked rise in the carbon dioxide levels. So for most patients, this elevation in carbon dioxide won't cause any problems. But there are certain groups of patients in whom it will. Um, for example, patients who have traumatic brain injury, um, the elevated carbon dioxide may cause raised intracranial pressure. Or if the patient ha already has a significant metabolic acidosis um, due to loss of the Kussmaul compensation, um, the pH will plummet as the carbon dioxide levels rise, even for a short period of time. Um, so as rapid sequence induction isn't without risk, it should only be performed when the advantages of doing so outweigh the disadvantages. And this is rarely the case um, during the intubation of the critically ill child outside the anaesthetic room. And the main factor that limits this technique in children is their smaller functional residual capacity of their lungs and their higher demand for oxygen. And this means that even with adequate pre-oxygenation, critically ill children are highly likely to desaturate during the apnea period or during the intubation attempt. And this is more noticeable the younger the patient is, as they have a higher demand for oxygen and a smaller reservoir of oxygen that can be built up during the pre-oxygenation period. Um, and if you look at the intubation of a sick neonate, even with um, good pre-oxygenation, face mask ventilation during the apnea period while you're waiting for the muscle relaxant to take effect and slick intubation, that child is highly likely to desaturate during the intubation attempt. So trying to perform a classical rapid sequence induction in this population is crazy. Um, if they're going to desaturate with face mask ventilation during the apnea period, trying to do that without the face mask ventilation doesn't make sense. And when you're weighing up your risks, the risks of um, trying to prevent aspiration with a rapid sequence versus trying to prevent um, significant hypoxia and all the complications that go with that, um, it means that you can rarely perform a rapid sequence induction in this patient population. Okay, so that's a bit of the background um, about the problems and why this is a controversial issue in uh, children. So what can we do about it? 
Um, I think the first consideration is if the child is inadequately fasted, do I need to go on ahead and intubate them? Can I wait until they are adequately fasted? Um, and this may be appropriate in semi-elective um, circumstances. For example, if the child is being intubated to facilitate a procedure, um, then delaying intubation till they're adequately fasted may be appropriate. For example, in the ICU, if you're planning to change a tube from oral to nasal, it would be inappropriate to change that um, if the child wasn't fasted. Um, you should wait till they're fasted and then change it, um, provided the tube change isn't urgent. Whereas if it's an emergency procedure, um, delaying the intubation isn't going to be appropriate. It's also important to mention that if the child is critically ill, waiting for them to be adequately fasted still isn't going to guarantee an empty stomach. So they're still going to be at risk of aspiration and you are going to have to take the additional steps to help prevent this that I'm going to mention now. Um, the first thing you should probably try and do is try and intubate the child um, with a slightly head up position rather than lying them down flat. Um, this will not only reduce the risk of regurgitation and enhance aspiration, but it's probably going to provide you with better oxygenation as well. Um, as we already mentioned, there's no guarantee that even if the child is adequately fasted, that the stomach is going to be empty. Um, as we said, critically ill children, the stomach doesn't empty um, reliably. So it makes sense if you've already got a nasogastric tube in situ that you should aspirate the contents of the stomach prior to inducing anaesthesia. If the child doesn't have a nasogastric tube in, then you're going to have to weigh up the risks and benefits of inserting one. Obviously the risks of inserting one are that you may induce vomiting and the child may fight with you causing respiratory deterioration. Um, but obviously the benefits of doing so are that you can um, remove the gastric content prior to the induction of anaesthesia and very importantly that because we're, we're going to have to bag these children we're not going to do a classical RSI um, that you can then aspirate any air that gets down into the stomach preventing gastric distension which as well is hopefully going to reduce the risk of aspiration but also should improve your oxygenation with face mask ventilation because obviously if the stomach distends it can spin the diaphragm and make ventilation in some cases very difficult. Um, so whether you decide to insert one or not, uh, you're going to have to weigh that up on a case-by-case -case basis, weighing up the risks and the benefits. Um, an alternative is to insert the nasogastric tube after induction of anaesthesia when the gag reflex is going to be suppressed, but before you start bagging the patient. It's also important that face mask ventilation is gentle and there needs to be a balance between trying to inflate the lungs while not trying to inflate the stomach. However, if you've got a nasogastric tube in and you've allocated a member of the team to continuously aspirate that during face mask ventilation, um, causing gastric distension is going to be less of a problem. When it comes to deciding about cricoid pressure, um, you're going to have to make your own decision on that after weighing up the risks and the benefits. Um, certainly my experience with cricoid pressure, I've had plenty of grade 1 airways turn into grade 3 or grade 4 airways. Um, and when you consider the evidence for its use is actually quite weak, I don't routinely use it um, during the intubation of critically ill children. Although there may be certain circumstances, I do see that the risks of not using it um, are outweighed by the benefits of doing so and will use it for 
certain circumstances. Um, but that's something you're going to have to make your own mind up on. Okay, to, so to sum up the unfasted patient, um, carrying out a rapid sequence induction is not without risk. And it should only be performed when the risks um, are outweighed by the benefits. And for most critically ill children, there's only a handful of cases that that's going to be appropriate. Um, and for most children, you're going to have to carry out a modified rapid sequence induction. And you're going to have to bag the children during the apnea period. Um, to try and prevent them from regurgitating, um, keep them in a semi-upright position. Um, they should be bagged gently. And it's really important that you have a nasogastric tube in and uh, somebody con constantly aspirating that while they're being bagged. Okay, so the final um, special circumstance I want to look at is the unanesthetized patient. So in general, prior to intubation, the patient should receive an induction agent. Um, that causes unconsciousness so that the patient is unaware of the procedure and also the physiological response to the stimulus caused by laryngoscopy is blunted. They should also be given a muscle relaxant, which causes relaxation of the muscular tone uh, and abolishes the protective airway reflexes, allowing you to do laryngoscopy. Um, it also causes the vocal cords to relax in the open position, facilitating passage of the endotracheal tube. So administration of these medications prior to intubation is standard anaesthetic practice. And while I don't recommend trying to intubate without them, as they make intubation easier and safer, um, as intubation of babies without any medications occurs routinely in delivery suite, and the intubation following administration of only an induction agent is standard practice in many neonatal units, I feel it's important to try and provide approach for dealing with a common life-threatening complication, which is often under-recognised, that can occur as a result of this practice. I think it's important to say that I do occasionally intubate babies without muscle relaxant if, for example, they have a diff difficult airway, um, but they always get an induction agent. So I'm never intubating the unanesthetized patient, but I know some of you are, so I want to give you an approach for when things go wrong. So the common life-threatening complication I'm talking about is laryngospasm. So laryngospasm is spasmodic closure of the vocal records in response to a stimulus. And this stimulus can be local, for example, instrumentation of the airway during laryngoscopy or attempted passage of an endotracheal tube. Or it can be systemic, um, for example, painful stimulus elsewhere, for example, inserting a cannula. And it normally occurs in a light plane of anaesthesia. Um, so you see what I'm mentioning, if you're not giving the child an anaesthetic and you're trying to intubate them, you've actually got no anaesthetic on board. Or for example, if you give them a, a weak induction agent um, in an innate unit, the patient is going to be on a light plane of anaesthesia. And if you haven't given them a muscle relaxant, they're at high risk of laryngospasm. And if during the laryngospasm you get complete closure of the vocal cords, both face mask ventilation and endotracheal intubation may be impossible. And unless you promptly recognize what's going on and give appropriate treatment, life-threatening hypoxia will quickly occur. So fortunately, the treatment for laryngospasm is relatively straightforward, but you need to recognize that's what's going on. Um, so it's important that you give oxygen and PEEP while trying to break the spasm. 
Um, it's important that you quickly deepen the anaesthesia and the ideal agent for doing this is propofol. As an alternative, you can give the patient a fast-acting muscle relaxant, um, for example, succimethonium. So, laryngospasm shouldn't surprise you when it occurs. Um, if you're intubating patients without muscle relaxant, you should be expecting it to occur and have a plan of how you're going to deal with it. So that it's not a surprise to you. Hang on, what's going here on here? Why are these cords closed? Why can't I pass the tube? What do I do? You need to know about it and have thought about it in advance. Um, how you're going to deal with it. So like I say, there's really only two circumstances I can imagine this occurring um, when dealing with critically ill children and babies. The first is a difficult airway um, where you're going to have experienced staff who've decided, for example, to do a gas induction and not administer a muscle relaxant. And if laryngospasm occurs, it should be their bread and butter dealing with it and they should have a plan in place for that. The other place it occurs is in neonatology, um, when people have electively decided either in delivery suite not to give any drugs or in a neonatal unit to just give an induction agent. Um, and it's in this circumstance where laryngospasm is often unrecognised and people really don't have a plan of how they're going to deal with it when it occurs. So I want to spend the next little bit giving you a plan of how you can deal with it. And for those working in neonatology, propofol is not really going to be an option. It's most likely going to be succimethonium, which you're going to use to treat the laryngospasm. So the normal intubating dose of succimethonium for neonates is 2 milligrams per kilogram, where you can expect it to work in 30 seconds if given intravenously. If you don't have intravenous access, it can also be given intramuscularly. So you need to double the dose to 4 milligrams per kilogram, and you can expect it to work in about two minutes. So as providing treatment for laryngospasm is time critical, you need to have these doses in your head. You need to have them memorized. So in that emergency situation, you can work out the dose that you need of sucks for all the patients that you're going to encounter. Um, you need to go a step further than that. Um, having a dose in your head doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be able to administer it quickly. Um, succimethonium comes in one concentration, it's 50 milligrams per mil, and that doesn't really lend itself easily um, to converting a dose in milligrams to a volume in mils in your head. And also because it's fairly concentrated, it means you're going to need to further dilute it um, to work out the small doses that you're going to need to give to neonates. So I've come up with a method for preparing this. Um, you don't need to use the method I'm going to show you, but you need to have a method in your head that you can use um, for when the situation occurs. And importantly, remember, you might be managing the airway and need to instruct somebody else on preparing and giving it. And as part of your plan, you also need to factor in that you might not have intravenous access. So um, my method for doing this, um, you take 0.4 mils of succimethonium, 50 milligrams per mil, and dilute it with 0.6 mils of 0.9% saline. That makes you a solution of 20 milligrams per mil. You then give 0.1 mils per kilogram, which is the 2 milligrams per kilogram of that reconstituted 20 milligram per mil solution by intravenous or intraosseous injection. And it's easy to remember that dose, it's 0.1 mils per kilo, 
which is the same dose of adrenaline you'd give in a cardiac arrest. So you always make it up the same way and you just it's easy to calculate the dose in your head. Um, if you don't have intravenous access, you just need to double the dose. So it's 0.2 mils per kilo, made up exactly the same way. And the trick with the, because you're using such small volumes with intramuscular injection, make sure you flush the needle you're using for injection through with the solution. Otherwise you'll find it gets lost in the dead space. Okay, so that's laryngospasm. You need to know about it if you intubate patients without muscle relaxant because it will occur and it shouldn't take you by surprise. You need to have thought about how you're going to manage it in advance and have a method for doing so. The treatment is oxygen and PEEP while you either deepen the anaesthesia or give the patient a fast-acting muscle relaxant. Okay, so that's a quick run through intubation in special circumstances. I hope you find it useful. Thanks for listening.